chair or two, but I'm glad you're here. And uh, again, just a reminder that after this service, there will be a informational meeting for members only. So keep that in mind uh, right after this. It, it, I don't think it'll be very long at all. Um, let's now take our Trinity hymn books and turn to 627. 627, happy the home. Let's stand together as we sing. Let's pray together, and I would encourage you to pray for Tim and Kathy, who this afternoon are visiting with their daughter there in Grand Rapids in the hospital, that that God would be pleased to use what's going on in Heidi's life, even to bring her unto himself. Brother Cliff Montry, would you lead us in prayer, please? Amen. You can be seated. Proverbs 31, another <clears throat> bittersweet moment. We come to the end of another book. Um, excuse me a second while I get it up here. Pastor Walden was saying, asked me if I had the virtuous woman down. (laughs) 
for speaking about her um, today. And um, he said there should be a chapter on the virtuous man is what we need. I said, well, that's verses 1 through 9. So, uh, men, you're not <laughs> off the hook. Not that this is a hook at all. It's a wonderful uh, description It shows how this woman models wisdom. We've been talking about wisdom throughout um, the book here, uh, book of Proverbs. But we see how she models it in two, even three, maybe more of the primary topics that we've talked about in the book of Proverbs. Uh, One of those topics is purity, personal purity. She models that. Uh, In verse 11, her husband's heart safely trusts in her. So he he trusts her while he is uh, gone. But not only that, he trusts her with money. She is a very industrious woman. She knows how to make money, and she knows how to invest it. She studies it. She considers uh, the field uh, before she buys it. She takes money she's made from the vineyard and invests it in the land. It's a, it's a very detailed, in a, in a way, a description here. So she models that industriousness, which is to say she's not a sluggard. She's nothing like the sluggard. <laughs> you could say, as uh, Solomon said earlier, go to the ant. We can also say now, go to the virtuous woman, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. This is a beautiful uh, portion of Scripture. Um, In the Hebrew, each verse, 10 through 31, there's 22 verses. Each one is uh, beginning with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet consecutively. Um, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, etc. So it's a very... uh, Lovely piece of poetry, if you will. Back to her virtues, uh, industrious, also her tongue. How many passages did we have about the use of the tongue uh, throughout the book of Proverbs? And she uh, models this uh, for you in verse 26. She opens her mouth in wisdom. The instruction of loving kindness is on her tongue. So, Young men, if you're not married yet, here's what you're looking for. Young women, this is what you want to strive to be so that you're ready for marriage. And, of course, uh, married women. Here is another example. Notice (laughs) there's kind of a uh, friendly, I hope, uh, competition uh, among the women when the husband says to her at the end, uh, many daughters have done virtuously. It doesn't escape his notice that she's not the only woman who is virtuous. So the field is open for there to be many, but his excels them all. (laughs) And so, ladies, there's kind of a holy competition. Who can be (laughs) the most virtuous? Virtue, uh, I noticed in the King James The word is virtuous, and that's the one we're probably most familiar with. And I noticed in uh, the passage read this morning about Christ, when it says power uh, went out of him to heal, the word in the King James is virtue. So it's an old English word, but it means power. It's also translated many times army. And so she's a strong, uh, powerful Graceful? (laughs) I can't say enough. Anyway, verses 1 through 10, on the other hand, verses 1 through 9, is Lemuel's uh, prophecy that his mother taught him. Lemuel, by some, is thought to be uh, Solomon, like a pet name that a mom might have for her son. At at any rate, um, she starts out in verse 2 with exclamations. In the English, there's there's not an exclamation mark. There probably could be, and it would be biblical, biblically correct, where she says three times the word what. What, my son? What, 
the son of my womb. What? The son of my vows. She's getting his attention. She's getting in his face. And that's that's a good mom because she sees evidently in him uh, too much uh, of the wrong type of interest in women. Do not give your ways to what destroys kings. By the way, this is uh, royalty uh, speaking. She wants him to behave in a way that becomes uh, his office as king. And he has too much of a love for wine, perhaps. She's telling him, strong drink is not for kings. And let, uh, let the poor uh, drown their sorrows. Why would she say that? I wonder. That kind of puzzles me a little bit. It sounds a little bit like uh, uh, derogatory of, of the poor, but uh, it's, uh, it's there. Uh, let the poor uh, have it. And then finally, judgment. Judgment is the, the important office of the king to ex- exercise justice. And he's to open his mouth for the, to, in the cause of the afflicted. <clears throat> uh, one comment uh, that I read was, you have to tell wise men to open their mouths. You don't have to tell fools that because their mouth is always open. But he needs to be encouraged to Uh, take the lead and do what is uh, right. Uh, Enough for me. Proverbs uh, 31. The words of King Lemuel, the oracle unto which his mother disciplined him. What, O my son? And uh, by the way, the ESV goes ahead and puts the adds the words in. What are you doing? (laughs) You ever you ever talk to your sons like that, Mom? Sometimes you have to. What are you doing? Son of my womb, uh, son of my vows, reminds us of Hannah who prayed uh, for a son. Uh, Son of vows. Do not give your excellence to women or your strength to women or your ways to that which blots out kings or destroys kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. It's talking about those who from early morning on are, are drinking the day away. Lest he drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those whose soul is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty and he will not remember his trouble any longer. Please don't misuse that verse. <laughs> It's not to drown your sorrows. Open your mouth for the mute, for the justice of all those passing away. Open your mouth. Judge righteously and render justice to the needy, to the afflicted and needy. And now, Aleph, an excellent woman, an excellent wife, who can find? For her worth is far above pearls. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She deals bountifully with him for good and not evil all the days of her life. She searches for wool and flax and works with her hands with delight. As we continue through, notice the frequent reference to the hands of this woman, how industrious she is. She is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. And she rises while it is still night and gives food to her household and a portion to her young women. She has servants. She makes plans for a field and buys it. From the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. Notice she knows she has good self-esteem, so to speak. Could someone get the door bills back there? Yod, verse 19. She stretches out her hand to the distaff, and her hands hold fast the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. And she stretches out her hands to the needy. Twice in that verse, the hands. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, 
for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits with the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and gives belts to the tradesmen. Strength and majesty are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the instruction of loving kindness is on her tongue. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her. As for her husband, he also praises her, saying, Many daughters have done excellently, but you have gone above them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears Yahweh, she shall be praised. Give to her from the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. Now let's take our Trinity hymn books, turning to 256. 256, Break Thou the Bread of Life. 256. Let's stand together as we sing. This afternoon, I wanted to continue what we started in Sunday school last week as we began dealing with this topic on church officers. Um, It has been some time since we addressed this topic, and in light of our own present need, I thought it would be good for us to look at this topic together during this time, 
And so last week, if you recall, some of you weren't in that class, but if you recall, we considered, first of all, the importance of this topic, and we looked at several passages of Scripture that reminds us that what we're building upon is, is that which we'll one day give an answer to Jesus Christ for. So we want to be careful how we build. And then we look together at the directives, or the directive in, in going through this topic together. And that directive is the Word of God. It is not what works. That will decide church officers or what is expedient, what is easy will help us in deciding church officers. But what, what does the Word of God have to say with regard to church officers? So we considered those things together and then we barely got into uh, the subject of this topic and that's uh, our responsibility uh, to choose officers, to choose those who serve in the office of the church. When we think about the office of an elder, we're not talking about a person. We are talking about a position in the same way that when we talk about the office of a president, we're not talking about an individual such as Donald Trump or uh, Mr. Biden, but we're talking about his position and authority that he has over us as a nation. And so is in the church. There are office bearers that, that hold these offices which speak of a position that is found in the church. And so we, we consider together uh, what offices are assigned in the Word of God. And I hope that those of you who are here in Sunday school, if I ask you, where do we find in Scripture the offices that are found in the Word of God, that immediately you would say Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. Right? Philippians 1.1 1, 1 addresses, that's where we find the answer to that question when it talks about overseers and deacons in the church. So in answering the question, what offices are there in the church? There's the office of the elder and the office of the deacon. And so the, the officer of, officers of the church is first the bishop or an elder. Those, we looked at those terms being interchangeable. And then there's the deacon. And from 1 Timothy chapter 3, it, it's more than just a ministry, because deacon means servant, and that's more than just a ministry, but it is a recognized office in the church. So now the next question I want you to consider with me that we'll touch on this afternoon is, what are the functions of these two offices in the church? What's the function? So first of all, what's the basic function of an elder? And I think at the end of Sunday school last week, I said if you, if you could use one term to describe the function of an elder, what would that be? And maybe if we were in Sunday school class, I would give you the opportunity of answering that question. But the one word is that of overseer. He is an overseer. The term is used in a passage like 1 Peter. So if you want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5. Verses 1 and 2. Peter writes, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight 
not under compulsion, voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, <coughs> nor yet as ruling or lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be an example to the flock. So here Peter says, as, as, and it's noticed how the terms are interchangeable, as he is speaking to his fellow elders who are shepherds of the flock of God who exercise oversight. They are overseers. And that term oversight comes from a root word which used in its verbal form means to look upon, to inspect, to look after, or to care for. That's the idea of an overseer. One who looks upon, one who inspects, one who looks after, and one who cares for. The, the only other time this word is used in its verb form is in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15, where it says here, See to it, there's our term, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Be inspecting, look after, see that, or see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. He, he is to look carefully. He's to watch in the same way that one would watch over his own soul. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. See to it that you're, you're caring for those under your charge. And, and watch over that flock as you're watching over your own soul. He is to watch for the flock of God as, as one who's been appointed an elder in the church. So what exactly does that look like? How is he to watch over the flock? And the Bible indicates there, there are three analogies that we can give to his responsibility of watching over the flock. He's to watch over them as a shepherd watches over his sheep. He's to watch over them as a father watches over his family. And he's to watch over them as a ruler over his people. So we have the idea of the home, of a field, and of a government. So the overseer cares for, looks after the church in these three ways. First of all, he gives oversight as a father with his family. Turn over to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Most of you are familiar with this portion of Scripture. It's the qualifications of those who are overseers and, and deacons in the church. And notice what the Apostle Paul has to say with regard to those qualifications. And we'll look at more detail at the qualifications later on. But for right now, I just want you to notice verses 4 and 5. For here the Word of God says, For an overseer, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And he says, But if a man does not know how to manage his own household... How will he take care of the church of God? I mean, the question is asked by the Apostle Paul. If this man cannot exercise proper oversight of his own home as a father should, how does he exercise proper oversight of the church? 
a father should bear a relationship to his family that is instructional. A father ought to be in his family one who cares for them, who loves them, who provides for them. He is the stability of the family. He ought to be one who exhorts his family. He has That's what a father should do. And in the same way, an elder might be considered the spiritual father to his family. An elder should be to his people as a father is to his family. So oversight would be that of a father to his family. Secondly, oversight of a shepherd to his sheep. It is of a shepherd to his sheep. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2 Shepherd the flock of God among you. The idea of a shepherd. What do you think of when you think of a shepherd? You think of someone who cares, protects, serves the sheep. And sometimes the sheep can be very stubborn. And and sometimes the sheep can be very dirty. But he's there caring for them, watching over them. He's there to guide them. He's there to lead them and lead them to good pastures. In John chapter 21 in verse 16, when Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? And, and in that verse 16, Christ says to Peter in answer to Peter's statement, shepherd my sheep, shepherd my sheep. Look over to Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Acts 20 and verse 28. Peter addressing the elders of Ephesus. And and we read these words. "Be Be on guard for yourselves and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit made you overseers, shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. An elder needs to recognize that that he's dealing with people who have been bought with a price, that highly esteemed price of Christ's blood. And therefore, He gives Himself to shepherd them, to care, protect, Provide, guide, and lead them. Again, John Brown says, To procure and administer food to the flock is an important part of the shepherd's duty, but is not his only duty. He must strengthen the diseased, heal the sick, bind up the broken, and bring again that which was driven away, and seek that which was lost. He must go before them, guide guide them, govern them. The whole duty of the Christian eldership are included in shepherding the flock. So he's to be a father with his family. He's to be like a shepherd with his sheep. And then finally... He's to be as a ruler with his people, with his people. And here, look over to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Here the writer of Hebrews exhorts the people of God and he tells them, verse 7, Remember those who led, oversaw you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider, and considering the results of their conduct, imitate their faith. And then he goes in verse 17, again, telling the people how they should respond to their leaders, to their elders. Verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them 
For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So you're to obey your leaders. Now, can someone abuse that? Sure they can. And there have been pastors who have done that. But so far as men who shepherd you, teach you the Word of God, instruct you, as we reminded in Sunday school, that the Word of God is, is superior, you're to obey them as they instruct you in that word. They're keeping watch over your soul. And if you want a, a sobering thought, then just think of this next statement. They are men who will give an account to God. That's sobering. But then notice he says this. Let them do it with joy and not with grief. For this would be unprofitable to you. You should ask yourself the question, am I a joy or a grief to my pastors, to my elders, as they seek to serve the people of God? So here we see that his responsibilities is that like that of a ruler over his people. Let's look at another passage. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 5. Second, it must be First Thessalonians. I've written down wrong. Yeah, First Thessalonians, chapter five. If you find Second Thessalonians chapter five, let me know because there's something wrong with your Bible. <laughs> Second Thessalonians chapter five, verses twelve and I mean First Thessalonians five, twelve and thirteen. But we request of you, brethren that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord to give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Here he reminds us that we're to appreciate those who... Now notice who diligently labor among you, who work hard in your midst. I understand. I've been doing this long enough to know all the jokes about pastors and how much we work one day a week. I know. You guys got it made. You only work one day a week. But an elder who seeks to guard and care for his people is a man who is on 24-hour call seven days a week, and deals with many difficult matters as he cares and watches over his sheep. It is a hard work. It is a challenging labor. And I don't say that to you because I don't think you realize that. I, I think you do understand that. And I'm appreciative of that. And I pray that whatever God has for us or for me in the future, that this church will always recognize, by God's grace, shepherding, caring, and watching over a flock. At times can be very lonely. At times can be very difficult. Sleepless nights. Caring for the flock of God. And I want... I want to read, I debated whether I should read this to you or not, but I think I will, because as I do so, I want you to know that I don't read this because I don't think you understand this. I, I read this because I hope we'll always understand this. And whether I'm here or some, I, I'm hoping in some ways I'm just laying some groundwork for the guys that would follow me one day. But this came across my path as I was going over these things. It comes from Troy Kane. You might remember he visited us several years ago from Australia. And uh, he sent this out. And it was written by a man by the name of Tim Cox, Jr. I don't know who Tim Cox is, but this is, I don't know if it's a blog or I don't know if, I, I don't know what they call these things nowadays. But but he wrote this. And, and, I, and I think it's good for us to just remember these things. And he says this, 
According to recent studies, four to 5,000 pastors quit every year. They don't quit because they have a lack of faith in God. And they don't quit because they don't believe in the calling God has placed on their lives. And they don't even quit because of financial reasons. Pastors quit because they are overwhelmed with mental exhaustion. Until you're, past, until you're a pastor, you'll never fully understand what it's like to carry spiritual burdens for people. Getting up in the middle of the night, praying for your family of faith, awakening in the middle of the night with someone on your heart, overwhelmed with concern by a person's absence or distance. Your mind continually occupied with the presentation of the upcoming Sunday message. How to preach it. What to teach on. How to apply it. Getting critiqued on a continual basis. Being told you need to do better or that some areas of the church simply need to be better. Pastors invest their whole lives into people, and yet people will turn their backs on their pastor at the first sign of a storm, usually without a conversation. Pastors stand in the middle of disputes. Pastors stand in the middle of gossip. Pastors counsel broken marriages. Pastors comforts those who have suffered loss. Pastors navigate, navigate the waters of imperfect people with a desire to see each one of them thrive in their faith. They long for spiritual breakthroughs. Your pastor craves the very best for you. All this while they're trying to battle their own flesh and grow in their own relationship with God. Pastors see the post. Pastors hear the whispers. Pastors endure the negativity. Pastors are continually caring for the sheep while fending off the wolves. Pastors pour out and pour out and rarely being poured into. What keeps a pastor going? You. You. The person who is genuinely hungry, you, the person who worships with passion and freedom, you, the teenager who's striving to be a follower of Jesus, you, the single mom who understands the beauty of a hope found in Christ, you, the one who walks through the door for the first time because you're in search of peace and hope and community. Pray for your pastor. Serve your pastor. Talk with your pastor. Encourage your pastor. They are human. And they need more than you think. Now again, I'm not reading you this, this to you so that you'll say, Oh, poor Pastor Walden, we need to come along and help him up and... You know, I feel very much appreciated and I'm thankful for each one of you. But that's the experience of many pastors. They are burned out. And they quit because of the challenge of caring for the souls of people. That's their job though. And by God's grace, we pray that they continue on. And by God's grace, we pray that God will raise up more godly men who will shepherd His people. So what's the responsibility of an elder? To oversee the flock of God. As a father does with his family, as a shepherd does with his flock, and as a ruler does with his people. That's his responsibility. Now I was going to go on, and I think I'm going to stop here, but... But the, the other point I have that I was going to look at this afternoon is a guideline for the number of elders. 
How many elders should there be in a congregation? And the answer to that, very simply, is there should be a plurality as a general rule. A plurality as a general rule of elders in the church. And there are several passages of Scripture where we see this to be true. Acts 14.23, Acts 15.2, Acts 20.17, Philippians 1.1, Hebrews 13.17, James 5.15, call for the elders, 1 Peter 5.1, all point to the fact that there should be, as a general rule, a plurality of elders. Now, sometimes in the providence of God, that's not the case. There may just be one elder. It doesn't mean we're not a church, but it means we need to pray all the more that God would provide us with an eldership. That God would provide us with an eldership for the good of each one of us, as well as for the good of myself. We need that plurality of elders. We need to cry to God to give us that. It is abnormal and unsafe in many instances, when there's a community of believers that only has one elder, he often becomes a mini-pope. I don't want to be a mini-pope. But a one-elder man often becomes his, his rule. He doesn't get advice or counsel from anyone else. It's what he says goes. And, and that's dangerous. It is unwise. And, and we need to pray that God would raise up a plurality. But let me say this also, it is also unwise and unsafe to appoint a plurality of elders just for the sake of saying we have a plurality of elders. Just saying we're going to recognize somebody because we need a plurality of elders and, and though this man may not qualify, we will ask him to be one so then we can go out and say we have a plurality of elders. We don't want to do that either. So we want to be wise both with our need of a plurality, but we want to be wise with regard to who we appoint to the eldership in days to come. But I pray that we will make this a matter of prayer and ask God to provide for us in the days to come. I mean, if you, if you just have one elder, what happens if something happens to him? What happens... I mean, have you considered that? What happens to this community of believers? Will men step up? I pray they will. But what happens if... I hate to even say this. My wife says I'll say it and it'll happen. And, you know, Pastor Walden has a massive heart attack this week. And he's not here. Then what? What does that look like? Well, we pray that God would still protect you. He did in, in um, Seattle. They've been without a pastor. For a long period of time, men have stepped up and given them leadership. But that ought to be a concern. Because Pastor Walden, one day, will not be here. And, and then what? But I pray that at that point, God will provide and take care of His people. So, we want to then move on to qualifications. And God willing, we'll do that in weeks to come with regard to an elder here in the church. Let's pray together. Father, again, we, we trust in You. This is Your church. And so we pray that You will continue to provide for us. We pray, Father, that You might be pleased to raise up or bring in men who will be able to serve in the eldership, who will love Your people, protect Your people, guide Your people, exhort Your people. So, Father, uh, even as we consider these things together, may you be pleased to answer our prayers and give us such gifts in days to come. For these things we do pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in closing, take your hymns of grace and let's sing together 364. 364. I'll firm a foundation. 364. Let's stand together.
take a couple minutes and then we'll have the informational meeting. So if you're not a member of the church, I'll ask you to go down to the basement or go someplace. Uh, and only the members of the church, please remain in the auditorium. You may be seated. <laughs> 